0: You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 88. Today, I talk with Dr. Gabriel Beats. He's a vascular surgeon and multi-talented. He thinks that we should learn something new every year, and he believes the reinvention process happens for all of us every five or seven years. These are wise words in this uncertain time in medicine. Hope you enjoy the show. For more information about the BOSS Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com. You'll also find the link to the Become the BOSS MD book. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the BOSS Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. I have another online friend who has agreed to join me on this podcast today. This is Dr. Gabe Beats. He is a vascular surgeon and multi-talented. I was so fascinated with all the things that he's done. I've watched him for a while, all the things that he's accomplished in his career so far. And I thought we really have to talk to him.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Dr. Bertries, and it's been great. I know we've had to kind of rearrange things a little bit to get this going, but I'm super excited to be here and, and it's been a pleasure. So thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So I know that you're a vascular surgeon, but your career has taken a few turns and I know everyone's been really fascinated to hear about all these turns that you've taken and all the things you've done to reinvent yourself. But tell us a little bit about yourself. What do people need to know?
1: All right. So my name is Gabriel Beats and I'm a board-certified vascular surgeon. I live down in San Antonio, Texas. It's a great place to practice medicine in South Texas. And also I'm married. My wife's an internist, and then we have two kids that are 13 and 11. And it's South Texas is it's a nice place to raise a family. We did our training at University of Kentucky, and that's where My wife finished internal medicine and then I finished general surgery and vascular. We liked Texas just because my wife's family's in Houston. So we decided to come on down. San Antonio is about three hours away. So it's a, it's a nice little drive so we can go visit for the weekend. And then what else I do? I I'm involved in a lot of different projects. Some they do great and they work out some, it was just an idea and they fizzle, but it's always been something I've enjoyed is along my journey I've always had a lot of irons in the fire, exploring new things and avenues from real estate to private equity, to kids books, to all kinds of stuff. So happy to share about it.
0: Yes. And so let's start a little bit on your tour so far. So you go to medical school Mm -hmm. and then you finish residency. Take us through how you decided what practice model to go with and what were some of the considerations that you had?
1: Sure. So I started, medical school is interesting for me because my family lived in Ireland. So I actually finished high school in Dublin, Ireland, in a small town called Hoth. And then while we were living in Ireland, they had a program where you could go from high school to medical school. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And I played a lot of rugby at the time when I was there. And so I applied for these early entry programs and was accepted. So I went to Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, got in, played rugby for them, Loved it, loved school, decided to wanted to be a surgeon, finished in it's a five and a half, like a six year program. while I was there, met my wife. she was from Canada, Amita, and then we got married after we graduated. and then we matched to University of Kentucky. And of course, coming from Europe, you have to go a little bit above and beyond, of course, compared to the US schools, which is normal. So a little bit more research more interviews, that kind of stuff, but it worked out well. So it matched into categorical general surgery. And while we were residents, it was pretty evident that medicine, was it's great, but we wanted to also learn other things. And so from a very early on stage, we started, you know, investigating real estate and learning about it and finding out what's going on and how to do it and how to invest. And so we would save and start trying to invest along the way. And during that time, we had two kids at University of Kentucky. My wife finished first. So she went into internal medicine, private practice, and then ran an HIV clinic for primary care. So she handled everything except the HIV management itself. And that was handled by infectious disease, but she handled everything else for those patients and took really good care of them.
0: Tell us a little bit more about these interest in real estate. Where do you think that came from? And you know, where did you start?
1: Okay, so we ended up starting just investing as limited partners. And I think that was probably the best thing that we could do getting started. We would find different multifamily deals, so apartment deals. And then we would invest, you know, kind of the minimum amount to get started and follow them along. We get quarterly updates, you get quarterly reporting, and you just start slowly learning the business. So, you, so one is being active and engaged in it. The second is reading up on it. So there's so much free stuff out on the internet and so many people willing to teach it that you can acquire a lot of knowledge for free. The third thing that we liked about it was we had kids and we were like, hey, now that you know, if in medicine, when you work, you're going to make your income, make your living. But if you're not working, the music stops. So but by investing, we knew that it was something we could build up to pass on to our children, which we have. And that was a big motivator for us.
0: And you mentioned something about protecting with trust. What did you learn about trust and when did you start setting these up?
1: So, we it's been a long time. We set them up a very long time ago. And so, for those out there that do have kids, I strongly recommend setting up dip, either a family limited partnership or a trust where you can start putting, you know, different assets inside of it because those are important. And the reason that those things are important is to protect them. And so, for example, It allows you to have designated different assets to your kids. Okay. And usually you set this up through an attorney. It kind of comes as a package deal where you set up, you know, trust for your kids, a family limited partnership, then your advanced directives, power of attorney, you know, you get the whole, usually it's offered as an entire package. And then that, and they'll kind of guide you through it. You file a separate tax return for them and it protects those assets in case something happens to you so that they can be received by whoever you designate them to. Some states like Texas, we have probate and probate court. So things can get tied up a long time if someone does pass away. And so, but if you have trusts and entities, which is the main motivator to do it, uh, then it really streamlines that process.
0: Perfect. And so now that you're finishing residency and you're looking at jobs, and I know your wife is in private practice, did that influence what you decided to do afterwards or what was your motivation for deciding the model?
1: So first of all, I think it was, it was really cool to watch my wife practice first because, you know, for general surgery, it's five to seven years, then vascular is another two. And so she was out in three. And so I got to really see it. So she was in an academic practice helping with the HIV clinic and managing those patients. She did private practice. She's been in an employed model. And so she was really my role model to see which ones were a good fit, because I would hear about it at the dinner table each time. Originally, I really wanted to stay in academics. I worked on a lot of research. I liked NIH grants. I enjoy inventing things and tinkering with things. And when I started looking at academic jobs, I felt like for the time period that I was graduating, the, the trend was to go from... The standard academic model of research, contribution, teaching, and then having a clinical practice that's less demanding to focused on more RVU generation, practice expansion, and then there's residents to assist you. And then research is kind of taking a back seat, unless you're doing it full-time professionally and chasing brands. And so I chose private practice. I like private practice because, yes, there was more of a learning curve up front in terms of understanding how billing and coding works, insurances, running a small business, but you also were, you know, you were in control, which is a good and a bad thing. In some ways, you have to deal with all the headaches of stuff. But in another ways, once you deal with those headaches, you've also learned something. that's a, those are teaching points. And so the next time a headache comes up, it's a lot easier to deal with. So there's a lot of upfront, you know, learning curve, but once you get that out of the way, I absolutely loved it, you know, cause you can change whatever you want.
0: Yes. I mean, certainly the flexibility and the control that you have in private practice is definitely the advantage. Yeah. Uh, what were some of the, the downsides that you saw with private practice?
1: I think some of the hardest things with private practice is you A call is always the big one, right? So for surgeons, what are the big things? So aside from pay, it's call, demand of the practice, and your protected time, right? Protected time outside of the hospital where you're not getting called about transfers. So I think the challenge with private practice is to make sure that you set up a very good call system amongst your peers and partners that allows people to have breaks, time off, you cover each other well for nights, weekends, and holidays. I think the other thing that's important in private practice is that it is a marathon, not a sprint. And so once you're established, give yourself some real vacation time. Like for us, when you became, when you were a partner in the group, you got 40 days off. Well, that's awesome, right? But those days are not just like to have fun, you also recharge. Think of stuff. So so don't, my point is, is regardless of your practice, the the doubt, da- I would say, don't run yourself into the ground. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Face yourself.
0: Such great advice too, because I find myself in my now third year of private practice that you could definitely be a slave to the reimbursement. Yes. And it's hard because it varies each day and we've enjoyed a decrease, annual decrease in salary, which is super fun. And yeah. also as expenses increase, but it, it is definitely something to make sure that you're taking that time off because you really have to make yourself take your time off. And unfortunately, the only thing that is keeping you from taking your time off is yourself.
1: <laughs> yes, and that's true. And so I think with private practice, I think one is um, you can either go solo, which is just perfectly fine. Some people are, are they're satisfied with a solo practice. And so when they take time off, their staff take time off and and you enjoy it. And then you have call coverage. You can go into like a, a group. We were a very large group. And I liked that model because you are able to get away. Our, everybody was good to each other. Everybody would cover each other. And then when you come came back, it was your turn to contribute and you would cover for somebody else. And so it was a very positive atmosphere. The other thing I like about it is it depends on how you share in private practice. So some models are, you keep what you kill. Some models are, you know, to a cost share practice. I think that those are good if you're, depending on if you wanna set up that way. Ours was different. We were a community. So everybody generated, you had some that would generate quite a lot. And then you have some that would generate not as much, but we would share it equally amongst each other. And then that solved a lot of problems because we all got along and the people who were earning high people who weren't earning as much were more supportive, right? So they would fill in a lot of gaps or as admin stuff to keep the right race car driver in the race car. Right. And at the same time, the hard workers like that because they didn't have to deal with anything else. They were super focused on this one area of vascular surgery. And so I think if you can find the right fit of people, then it gets really special really fast. And then it also avoided fighting.
0: Right. It definitely requires, you know, good communication and collaboration for sure, I would imagine.
1: Yes. And you have to be very open. I think if you're in a private practice and you're going to be in a big group, the biggest thing that you have to be is you have to be open to suggestion when it comes to patient care and small business management. And I think you also have to be open to suggestion. Like, I can't tell you how many times I would spend days mapping out a plan for a multi-branch endograph for vascular. And then you would have a partner come in and say, hey, let's do X, Y, and Z. And instead of saying, no, I already have a plan, you have to have a very low ego and have an open mind and entertain what they're telling you. And nine times out of 10, there is a way that an additional set of eyeballs will contribute to it. And I think if you're open to that, your patients will benefit and then you'll benefit. And then I also think if you make mistakes, not necessarily make mistakes, but if you have complications or someone changes a routine of care because a situation has occurred, then you need to be very open-minded to why someone may have changed a plan or took it in a different direction or handled a complication in a certain way and be open if you do have a complication because as surgeons, we have complications. They can happen, and they need to be managed appropriately, and you need to be open to saying, yes, that was my complication. Thank you for managing it. I agree with what you did. And if you're a surgeon that tends to bury them and not mention your complications, you're going to have a real hard time in a group like that.
0: Right. And I know we all have our own way of trying to figure out how to do complications, and I agree, like being open about it is the most helpful because not speaking up about them does not actually make you feel better for one thing. It doesn't let you be open to get support from your colleagues. And then also, if it looks like you're someone who just tends to hide things, that that erodes trust with your colleagues too. So I can only imagine the harm that that causes. But the last thing we want to do sometimes is to sort of parade our complications, but at the same time, when we know to expect them and that it's okay to speak it out loud then, you know, what we do is actually get support and reassurance, which hiding under the bed does not give us.
1: No, you're exactly right. And so like, there was one time I got called very sick patient in the unit, actively bleeding had, had just had recent surgery and you're like, it's three in the morning. This is not a good situation. It may not end well. Right. And here we are in the middle of it. And I think being proactive and calling a senior partner and saying, Hey, I don't need you to come in, but here's what's happening. I'm sorry I woke you up. We're going to take this on. Just want to run it by you. Make sure that there's nothing you would do differently. And I think if you, and at the same time, we have other partners, they'll call or call me and say, hey, we're in this situation. We've got to rupture AAA. You know, look, go on, go on to the HIPAA compliant portal. Do, do, Do you see, are there SEAL zones? Could we do this end up? You know, and so you rely on each other that way and the patients benefit you know and also if something does happen it's like well we all knew that you know this is the way mother nature was taking this patient and you know but it's everybody's on board it's not like you're finding out after the fact and i think that that's important so communication i would say in private practice or academics communication is probably the absolute most important thing
0: absolutely and I know we talked a little bit about the changes that you've seen in academic practices, which is why you chose not to pursue that. So tell me some of your thoughts on academic practice and how it's changed in the time that you have paid attention.
1: Well, you know, I think that when I was signing up for it, it was very RVU based. And I think now it's been a while since I've looked at recent academic practices, but now they're kind of I've seen some hybrid models inside of academics where you have people who are the research generators of that department. Maybe they have grants. And so they take a little bit of a backseat in terms of you know, expansion into the market. And then you have some that they're there to work. They enjoy being employed and they don't want to deal with the hassle. They just want to focus on surgery and practicing medicine. And they're, they're the high earner churning at big clinic type individual and so there I so I think that the pendulum is kind of coming back to neutral a little bit more than it has been in the past it swung it was very academic and then it turned into kind of almost a private practice model inside a university for a little while And I think now it's starting to get back a little bit to the middle it just depends but but so many universities and so many departments are so they're very different you know very very different
0: so and I liked your comparison when we were talking, getting back to the whole private practice and you know when you're responsible for your reimbursement and all too, and using your real estate comparison, you know what was your take on what was happening in medicine, you know, in a real estate model description?
1: I think a lot of it is healthcare is just an interesting model because when you look at it, reimbursement goes down every year for the most part. Yes, there are some bumps here and there. There's small tweaks we all have to look at the reporting stuff of Medicare and Medicaid. But in general, the decreases occur more often than the increases in reimbursement. And so imagine if you took a 4% rate cut every year. Well, you're already pulling all the levers you can to keep going. Your time is already maxed out. And so you're taking a 4% decrease in value of reimbursement. And you equate that to owning any other business. Well, if you owned a house, right? You own your house, and every year your house is worth 4% less, right? And then the next year it's worth 4% less, and then it's worth 2%. And then maybe it's worth 1%, and then it's a 3%. Like, how long are you going to hold on to the house? And I think that's where a lot of physicians and surgeons and health healthcare providers find the challenge of it is every year when the belt gets tighter and tighter. More and more physicians are seeking to do other things because they realize, and even through COVID, that things are just it's not going to get better. They're not going to adjust reimbursement rates based on inflation, like they do for Social Security, right? So if you receive Social Security, they would adjust Social Security benefits and plans based on inflation rates. But we're going in the opposite direction. You have inflation and costs are going up, and then you have reimbursement cuts. And it's like how. So how can you continue to make it in this type of a model, especially if you're a young surgeon? Let's say you got a 30 year career ahead of you, 25 year career ahead of you. What is that going to look like in 25 years if you're taking two to three percent a year? Yeah. You know, so.
0: As the cost to maintain said house increases.
1: <laughs> exactly, and so those are where the challenges are. is you know, insurance goes up, payroll goes up, taxation goes up, reporting. You know, inside of healthcare, private, private, regardless of academics or anything, the the glutton of of reporting to third-party payers, reporting to RACs or audits, the cost of carrying that document forward is extremely expensive and won't continue to rise unless, you know, there, there may be technology solutions out there that would need to go through a lot of hoops to solve that problem, you know, with a lot of approval process from, from third-party payers and physicians and entities but it's just, those are the challenges that, you know, most surgeons and most physicians face today. And so you have to come up with other things to to do, to earn, you know, to, to make it.
0: And I know that you had a great point of that all of us go through a reinvention process. And I think you estimated about every five or 10 years. So take yeah. us through your reinvention process and where you landed.
1: No, I think it's exactly right, Amy. I mean, you have to, regardless of what you're going to do in life, you have to look at a five to 10 years, have a game plan and and reinvent yourself because things do change. So if you're, let's say you're a general surgeon or a pediatric surgeon, technologies advance, ways of treating different things advance. And so you have to stay on top of your game and that's just good patient care. Well, take those, you know, CME, the continuing medical education boards, Well, take those same guiding principles that we already know, we've already been trained about and apply them to the outside world. So reinventing yourself may be learning new skills. I'm a very big proponent. I preach a lot about, it's always important to learn new skill sets. Every year, you should learn new skill sets, some inside of medicine, some outside of medicine. So for example, if you have an interest in In investing in real estate, maybe one year you say, okay, I'm going to learn about investing in industrial or multifamily or land, whatever it is, but I'm going to pick up this new skill set so that I can participate in these things. You may have a skill set of looking into private equity, or maybe it's writing a book that's outside of healthcare. But either way, I always tell people like, you need to constantly be acquiring new skill sets, focus on them. And some are going to be winners, some you may not use again right? They're duds, or they get repurposed into healthcare. Maybe you run a clinic more efficiently because you understand how private equity works. Maybe you learn about real estate and investing. And it's like, you know, I just don't want to invest with other people. And the next thing you know, you buy your own building and move your clinic into it. And so you own the building that your clinic's in, and then you rent out the other half or you own a small shopping center and your clinic is in there and you do it. But either way, Having these skill sets will always serve you well, you know, and re- so reinventing yourself and, and, t- and I would start with, you already can pay the bills, you know, you can already work as a physician, as a surgeon, find something you're passionate about. For me, I just enjoyed real estate because I pass it on to my children, you know, regardless of what they do, they can always own a piece of land or house or multifamily asset. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. I definitely love this. That is idea of all the things that we've worked towards are going to. We're going to benefit from. So yeah. the maybe you could look back and say maybe our investment in medicine wasn't the smartest investment that we've ever made. But you've already right. invested. You already well, have knowledge and experience.
1: And I'll stop you there because the way I look at physicians and the way I look at healthcare is this: when you're a physician, the investment in philanthropy giving back, the the reinvestment in your soul, in your purpose, that you've contributed to society in some way, that bucket is filled first. Then you're gonna do well financially. It's not super crazy. It's not the golden era of healthcare from the 1980s, but you make a good living, you can live well, okay? And you can do other things, okay? And that comes a little bit, that comes later, way later, depending on where you are, if you're PED surgery or vascular or something else. For business people or most normal people, it's different. You go to school, you earn all your income, you do very well through life. And then at the end, you're like, I need to give back, I need community service, I need philanthropy. And so they're filling that bucket last. So that that's how I kind of see it. You know, I
0: completely agree. And what we've talked about, too, of like looking at just one metric, if you look at just money and right now and what we're getting as physicians, they're like, well, this is sort of disappointing. But if yeah. you think about the fact that all the things you are getting and you have gotten and the investment that you put into yourself, you can cash into that investment at any time. Our ability to yeah. serve the communities and all as a physician are so wide ranging that we have basically bought the ability to do anything that we want with these transferable skills whether we stay in or not. And so it's important to remind ourselves of this, too, when we look at just one metric of the reimbursement, how we can make ourselves miserable. But if we look and see like, but look at all the things that I have the ability to do, then yeah. you know, start to realize that that is the investment we were really going for. And that is something that we are able to do at any point in our career.
1: I one hundred percent agree with it. and and that gets back to the reinventing yourself like, Listen, we are good at test taking. We've all studied, we've worked hard, and so when you combine that with passion, like like for example, I published a ton, of, you know, I not a ton of research, but I have a fair amount of publications and book chapters and everything else through medical school and residency and fellowship, and even in private practice, I still enjoy writing. You know, I wrote for I write about fun fun topics, like what was the topic I had? A, oh, the influence of you know CEOs and private equity and how that influenced healthcare you know i spent a lot of time on that topic you know inventions i spent a lot of time writing on that topic like the process of it excuse mm-hmm. me and uh, so you can like the skills of writing research is transferable and the skills of running a small business are transferable and the and the skill as a surgeon of being able to stay awake all night stay focused hydrate and power, you know work through things that that perseverance that that someone would have when things are tough in the operating room, those transfer to business, you know, like you have a bad business day as a vascular surgeon. I'm like, well, no one's bleeding to death. Today's OK, right? That's <laughs> the worst? OK, we got some bad news, but, you know, it's not is it really bad compared to the ultimate bad, you know, <laughs> or the ultimate. Hey, this was unfortunate, but. Is it sad, you know, like like a family of four getting in a car accident? No. Okay. So we're thicker skin. We're galvanized. And I think, especially in today's world, we're used to be... No one document. I know I'm going on a little rant here, but just let me go with it. Let me tell you something about the outside world and running a business. Nobody documents better than a physician, in my opinion. We are the king and queens of documenting. No, <laughs> no one's going to do it better. So if you like accounting, you're going to be a great accountant. You just need to learn numbers, but you're going to document everything. If you want to run a business as a physician outside of healthcare, and I'll take a good example of one, raising money. Physicians and, and, and people have argued this, non-healthcare providers have said to me, Well, physicians aren't good at raising money. And I said, I agree. But for those physicians who desire to, they're going to be good stewards. And why is that? Well, they're going to document well. They are going to treat raising capital like running a clinic. What does that mean? That means instead of patients, you have investors. Okay. Well, what did you do for your patients? You looked out for their best interests. You had a consent form that discussed risk, benefits, and alternatives. You explained everything to the fullest so that they could make well-informed decisions, right? And then you let them decide. And then as you're taking care of them, you have their best interest forward, not yours. That is a good role model. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to take that same skill set, and you're going to do it for investors, you're going to go out, and you're going to tell your investor the risks, the benefits, the alternatives. Instead of signing a consent, they sign a, a PPM or an offering memorandum or a subscription agreement, depending on where you're at and how you draft it. Then, when they participate in your business investment venture, you have their best interest forward because we've already engineered that way. And so, and and reputation is more important. And so you look after, we naturally care about people. That's our personality. Pretty easy skill set to transfer over when you put it like that.
0: Exactly. So let's talk about one of your passion projects. And I was surprised that you had mentioned this. So one of your passion projects that you are a published author. Tell us a little bit about this. Okay,
1: so when my kids, I'm a very oriented, I'm a very big family guy. And I'm a pretty big softie when it comes to, you know, my kids and wife. And I'm very, very proud to, to be a parent. I always tell people, they're like, how are you doing? I'm like, oh, it's a good time to be a parent. And so when my kids were little, we owned Betta Fish. And so I <laughs> used to tell them stories. And for a while, my my wife, Amita, she was like, hey, you got to p- publish these kids. You know, you can make a kid's book out of this stuff because I discovered a skill set that, because I'm good at talking and I ramble a lot, I can make a story, I can make a kid, I can make something interesting in a snap. I can, I, I am. I was like, I don't really felt like I was a very entertaining person, but, you know, people it kept my kid's attention and put them to bed. So I would make these beta fish stories where they were the beta fish. They would go on all these wild, different adventures. You know, the, the classic, there's an inner conflict, there's an external conflict. They solve a problem. You know, the the lead characters, you know, start off with an issue and then solve it at the end. And so I made like 200 chapters, like 220 chapters over five years. And so I kept little documents. And then when I was 40, and I'm, I'm showing my age now. So when I was 40, my, my wife wanted to surprise me. So she hired an author, a ghostwriter, and they interviewed to, to put it together as a kid's book. And it did not work out and we paid them, but the final pro, it it just, it didn't work out. They, you know, they, they, they were happy. They took our money and, and then did not respond to us. And so Amita and the kids, and that happens, that's okay. And so the Amita and the kids were pretty disappointed. And so finally they told me about it. And I sat down one weekend and like, just banged out, you know, 20 page manuscript And just like got it all out on paper, the first 15 chapters (laughs) and then refined it and sent it off. I hired like a writing coach slash editor, and then you send it in and it's very different to write for entertainment. So I had to learn character development and timeline because the story I'm playing in my head was very different than what is written on paper. And so you have to learn that skill set. And so that generated into a kid's book. And I wanted the kid's book to have short chapters, two page chapters so that kids could tell their parents, I read five chapters, right? Well, great. That's like two pages of text and an illustration, but they felt good. The goal was for the kids to finish the book. And then we have 42 illustrations in it and we published it thanks to my wife I can tell you a little bit about her if you want, because without More. her, yeah, okay. So so my wife and I are very good about, we're kind of yin and yang. And so if it wasn't for her, it'd still be sitting on my computer. We found the writing coach, the illustrator, kind of the guide, the manager. <laughs> Amita found all of those people and and drove the project forward to, to the finish line and then advertised it. It's a 120-page book. We had a book signing. We've gone to bookstores and done book signings. We're going to have a book signing at Barnes & Noble. That's pretty exciting coming up. I go to libraries. We've donated a bunch of books. And so it's been a just a fun project. Absolutely loved it.
0: Yes, and I think that you've revealed one of the secrets of success that I certainly have had, which is pick the right partner.
1: <laughs> I think Warren Buffett was right. He said, the biggest decision you'll make in life is to choose your teammate.
0: 100%
1: agree. 100% (laughs) agree. And it's true. And, you know, being, and again, it comes down to it because they're, they're your teammates. So communication, getting along, very, always important in in
0: marriage. I completely agree. All right. So now I know that you went through a really big reinvention and you you and your wife both did. And take us through what you're doing now and what led to you making this big decision, this big reinvention, and tell us about your latest project.
1: Oh, absolutely. So my wife and I both decided to take a break from medicine. And we didn't know if it was permanent retirement versus sabbatical, but we wanted it. COVID had been a lot for everybody. And we had all really dedicated ourselves to getting the communities in the country through it. And for us, it was kind of just taking a breather and saying, hey, what else, else is out there? We're both entrepreneurs. We both enjoy you know, building things outside of medicine. So for me, I enjoy creating real, different real estate projects and particularly in multifamily. Some we get into cryptocurrency. My wife enjoys coaching and so and also running and and also running real estate projects and so for us we were like hey let's take a break our kids are i got a daughter who's going into high school let's spend more time with our children we need to spend more time with family and then the other thing that was happening was we were kind of at a point where the the generation above us they're getting older they're passing away and we need to have some more time with them and so everything kind of lined up And so we both exited medicine. We still maintain malpractice insurance and keep up with credentialing and licensing to go and pursue kind of these other entrepreneurial projects. And of course, spend a lot more time with family and friends. And, you know, it's been nice. So we got some fun stuff coming up. We have a big family reunion coming up on a Meet This Side. That's going to be great. So yeah, it's been, it's a little weird. There are some days where you wake up and it's like, I need to feel productive today, right? Like I'm not exhausted from working day and night. And so those are the days where it feels kind of awkward. And it's like, wait a minute, we worked really, really hard to get to this point. It's time to enjoy it. And then there are days where you're just having fun, work exploring new things that you can do, you
0: know? the biggest lesson that we learn in, in business is that the more you follow business leaders, it is not, how do I do more? It's how do you do more and do less? You know, how do you get more accomplished and do less? You know, a lot of these successful business people are, are successful because they create a lot more time and space for themselves to be creative. And I know me personally did not value a lot of this, you know, on its surface, not income generating time, you know, your CEO time, your planning time, your creativity, your free time, you know, a lot of times we are, especially in the private practice model, driven by revenue aspects of it too. But in medicine too, you know, we are driven by the work that we do and, and we equate our value to the work that we do. So there's definitely a huge shift in how we feel about ourselves if we still equate working really hard with who we are as people. And I think that's definitely a physician model.
1: <laughs> well, I I 100% agree with you. And for the listeners out there, the way I like to phrase it is the, the senior generation of healthcare providers that are, let's say, 75 and up, right? Like that that 1980s, 1990s generation. Was so like being a physician was their identity, okay? And I think in... The modern world for all of those who are still actively practicing, regardless of age or generation, I really like to approach it as my identity defines my profession. And that's a very different way of looking at things. So so when you know it and, and as a surgeon, it's I am contributing to medicine. I am defining the way that it should be practiced based on the current circumstances, based on the best interests of the patient based on the O's that we took, but instead of the profession being my identity, you know, in the community, it's no, we practice medicine, my identity shapes my medical practice. And I think if you approach it like that, it becomes fun really, really fast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that.
0: That's a, such a perfect yeah. sentiment of, you know, my identity defines my profession rather than vice versa, because yeah. that's, what's going to allow us to take these sabbaticals and retire and, you know, leave open some life for us to enjoy ourselves too. Yeah. So take us through your latest project. So I know that you're doing a lot of really great things with this Mosaic equity group. What are sure. some of the things that that you're doing and tell us more about that.
1: Sure. So inside the company, we have two opportunities. One is we have a multifamily fund. It's closed now, but it's it's cruising along. It's doing well through this environment. We anticipated high interest rates. And so we've done a good job of positioning ourselves in a very safe spot where we can still you know, make good contributions and, and distributions to our investors. And at the same time, the properties are, are cruising along. And that was intentional because we anticipated high interest rates. And that has roughly 12, that has 12 properties in it across five different states. And they're absolutely gorgeous, purchased during 2022. Um, The other opportunity that we had was a crypto hedge fund, where we partnered with two other people. And during a lot of the market crash, there were opportunities to buy miners. And so for all those out there who are not familiar with what a Bitcoin miner is, there's many different ones. It's basically a supercomputer that helps contribute with the mathematical equations and help keeps helps keep, keep track of the ledger of transactions throughout you know kind of the the entire crypto world for specifically for Bitcoin and then you're awarded cryptocurrency Bitcoin based on how you're contributing and the demand and there's there's all kinds of metrics with hash rate and competition and so for that one there was a lot of distressed miners out there at the time and we were sitting in a very good position where we could purchase them. And so those those do, those do great. The other project that we're working on is we're looking at maybe putting together a distressed debt fund. So what does that mean to the listener out there? That means that there is a lot of real estate out there that is subject to varying interest rates. And so sometimes they become under a lot of pressure or in distress because the interest rate has risen above what they can do in terms of cash flow. And so you may be providing a solution to a lot of these. They're usually large multifamily projects is what we're looking at or large industrial projects. And so it allows them to keep going. And at the same time, there's enough value in the actual property to be able to support additional capital at higher interest rates. And so that, so that distressed debt fund is something that we're looking at pretty hard. And then the, the last thing is, is that we are, looking for new investors as we move forward and there's talks of interest rates continuing to rise there may be very interesting buying opportunities towards the end of this year and so we're always looking to make new relationships with people we're always looking to add people to our investor list who we're not asking for a commitment we're just saying hey if you sign up you can learn a lot and you can follow us and see what we're doing and that usually gives people comfort and whether they choose to do it or not, just like in medicine, right? Risk, benefits, and alternatives—we do the same thing here, and we, we're very transparent about it. Um, so those are those—that's what Mosaic's doing right now, and, and and it's fun. You know, that's pretty much a day job for me at these at this time.
0: <laughs> so now, tell us about how someone who's interested in you know hearing more about this, because you mentioned obviously this is not an obligation, but you have a newsletter and you have a website. Where do they find you?
1: So they can find me at www.MosaicEquityGroup.com. The other place is we have Facebook. So I'm all over Facebook and LinkedIn, but we have a Facebook group, Mosaic Equity Group, and you can find it on Facebook. And you know I'm in there a lot, sharing a lot of different information. And then of course we have a YouTube channel, which is Mosaic Equity Group. And those are a lot of fun. I got to make a couple more videos, but it's usually just a lot of free education and so why give it away for free because you know we've already made it we're we're there right we've retired doing it for 15 years and so just like in healthcare where i was in private practice and we do a lot of pro bono work you know if you were unfunded we're still going to take care of you we're not going to transfer you we're going to help you out and we're going to get social involved and we're going to see what benefits you have and get you signed up and and we're going to take care of you and so i feel like i have an obligation outside of medicine to do that too so share the knowledge so they can subscribe to our channel on YouTube and we give a lot of stuff away for free you know we just want people to to have it so they can make good decisions based on what they want to do
0: that sounds great well we'll definitely put the links in the show notes so people can find you as well but thank you so much for bringing all of your wisdom on there too because i i think that we as physicians you know especially in the landscape of physicians with this idea of creating, bringing our identity to the profession, but making a lot of other things, but there's a lot that we have that can contribute to our identity. That doesn't have to be just the physician. And I like your sentiment of my identity defines my profession and we can um, decide what our identity is, which can be a lot more than we're currently limiting ourselves. which gives us lots of options, whether the real estate market doesn't do well or whether medicine doesn't do well, or We have all these options, these transferable skills. And I think that you've done a really great job of illustrating a lot of different ones.
1: Yeah, I think that for those out there, don't, you know, don't overestimate what you can do in a year and don't underestimate what you can do in 10. Like have long-term plans. And if there are aspects of your life, your career that you don't like, write them down and see, are these things that I can solve? Or are these things where I can't solve them and I have to accept them and then find other ways to do it? So I think, you know, don't don't dwell on stuff too much. That would be my big message from here. Like you have skills, they transfer to other places. If you see a situation, act on it. If there's something you want to change in your life, think about it and then come up with a plan. And it gets brighter really fast. It's fun.
0: Yes. And I think that getting brighter really has a lot to do with your mindset. And you mentioned this before we yeah. started recording that, you know, if you're not happy and you know, list the things that you don't like. And then instead of getting upset about this list that you use it as motivation. And yes. I thought that was really great advice that I did yeah. not want to, to pass up, but I definitely credit you for the things that you said before we started recording.
1: Oh yeah. Well, I appreciate it. And again, thanks for having me on the show. And what I'd like to do is maybe in six months or For a little bit of time, we'll do a follow up and I'm happy to share more people are interested about what we're exactly up to. So
0: I think that's a great idea. And if anyone is interested, you know, just drop your questions and I'll make sure that Dr. Beats gets these. And so Dr. Gabe Beats, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. And I definitely agree to the follow up. We'll make sure to put that on the calendar.
1: Absolutely. All right. I'm looking forward to it. And thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: For more information on the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to BossSurgery.com.